Welcome to the first Predators Tennessean podcast of the season. I am Adam Vingan, the Predators beat reporter for the Tennessean and USA Today Network Tennessee. Every week during the Predators season, I will be joining you uh, to discuss the happenings of the local professional hockey team. And throughout the season, I will be joined by uh, several guest co-hosts. First, my dear friend Robbie Stanley of NHL.com has been gracious enough to join me here in the Tennessean office to discuss the uh, opening week of the NHL season. Robbie, how are you? Doing great, Adam. I appreciate you having me. Uh, absolutely. Yes, uh, it's been good to see the NHL back after a, well, for, for those of us in Nashville, it was a short summer, but uh, for the rest of the league, for 16 or 14 teams, I guess, it was a long summer that ended, uh, that uh, began in early April. Of course, the, the Predators made it to the Stanley Cup final. I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know, uh, but we're going to talk about this season, of course. We all know what happened last season. The Predators set very high expectations. Uh, for themselves at the start of the season. It didn't start off that well. They were the last team uh, to qualify in the Western Conference. They were the eighth-seeded team, the 16th overall. They swept the Chicago Blackhawks and beat the um, the St. Louis Blues and Anaheim Ducks in six games before losing to the Pittsburgh Penguins in six games in the uh, in the Stanley Cup Finals. So uh, a summer of change. Uh, out, go, out go James Neal. Out goes Mike Fisher. Out goes Colin Wilson. In comes Nick Bonino and Scott Hartnell. Roman Yossi is the new captain. And the season started with a thud or a dud, whichever one you, whichever one you would prefer, on uh, Thursday evening in Boston, a 4-3 loss to the Bruins in regulation that the score is not indicative of the game. And usually when you say that, it's because it's a blowout, but the team that lost played better than the score indicates. Right. In this case, the team that lost did not play as well as the score indicates. The Predators scored two garbage time power play goals to make it respectable and almost stole a point, at least a point, out of a game that they didn't deserve to win. Uh, so let's start there. Uh, the Bruins are, are a good team. Uh, they they haven't been as uh, potent in the last couple of years as they were when they were winning the Stanley Cup, but a, a good test for a young team in transition again off the bat, and the, the Predators laid an egg. Uh, so... You know, I was there, Robbie. You were watching closely back in Nashville. You know, why did the Predators play like that? Do you think in the first game of the season? Yeah, I mean, I think that was an interesting question I had. I did the post game show uh, on the Predators radio network after that game, and just the lack of speed really stood out to me. I mean, you looked at that game. Boston looked like they were hungrier. They looked like they were much faster to every fifty-fifty puck. The Predators weren't able to win any of those battles, and even through the neutral zone, I just thought. Uh, in the transition game, the, the Bruins really caught the Predators with a lot of speed. The puck management of the Predators wasn't very good. They would fall down, turn the puck over, and all of a sudden there would go the Bruins in transition the other way. So just a lot of sloppy mistakes by the Predators. Some of it was effort, I think. I mean, you, you heard Peter Laviolette kind of talk about it after the game. Wasn't really happy with their effort level. Wasn't happy with their speed. I, I do think they played better in the second period in that game than they did to start off that game, but there's no question uh, the Bruins looked faster to the puck. I mean, you've got young guys like Charlie McAvoy, David Pasternak flying around, uh, around out there, and uh, they just looked really uncomfortable for most of that game. Couldn't get very much zone time set up offensively at all, which you saw it at spurts, especially towards the end of last year with the Predators, especially with that top line of Johansson and Forsberg and Arvidsson. I mean, they'd have shifts where they would be dominant in the offensive zone for, you know, 45 seconds, a minute at a time, and you hardly saw any of that the other night. So 
just not very much speed on the Predators end in that opening night game. Yeah, I think what was actually an interesting statistic about the Bruins game, and you mentioned the young players uh, on the Bruins, Charlie McAvoy, a, a defenseman who actually made his debut in the Stanley Cup playoffs, yeah. but that was his first regular season game. And uh, Jake DeBrusque, who was also making his regular season debut, each of them scored their first NHL goals in their first regular season NHL games. It was the first time that two Bruins players have done that since 1949. So it was not a, uh, it was not a uh, great start in that regard for the Nashville Predators. And you mentioned um, the way they like to play the game. We were in the locker room earlier today for their practice. We're recording this on Monday afternoon. Uh, and they renovated their locker room. It's much nicer now, much more spacious. And in the back hallway, they have uh, painted on the wall speed and attitude. And Peter Laviolette talked about that today. Uh, players talked about that with me in Pittsburgh on Friday and the practice day they had before they played Pittsburgh uh, about that speed and that attitude, you know, being first on pucks, uh, you know, cycling in the zone, getting other teams pinned in their defensive zone. And they hadn't been doing that. They did it a little bit more on Saturday in Pittsburgh, but the bar was low. They didn't really have much, uh, much to clear to have a better effort, despite the fact they lost for nothing. So that's sort of the same thing, the score being indicative, right? You think for nothing, well, they got worse. Actually, I think they played a better game against Pittsburgh than they did Boston. Uh, but still, there were some shades of game five in that building when Evgeny Malkin scored 66 seconds in and, J- and then Jake Gensel, who scored at least 100 goals against the Predators in the Stanley Cup final, had uh, had a rebound goal early. And UC Soros played a strong game and the Predators felt like they were coming on up until the point where Ryan Reeves scored the third goal and then it sort of turned into a slugfest, to use Peter Laviolette's terminology, after the game. Uh, so it, it was a, a, a rough start and, uh, you know, it hasn't uh, gone well uh, for other teams in the NHL, too. Uh, but the Predators, you know, it's, it's reminiscent of last season. They started 2-5-1 and one in October. They ended October last season as the second-worst team in the NHL. Of course, it worked out well, but the team had been stressing all training camp long that the most important thing was getting off to a better start because we saw how well they played uh, at Bridgestone Arena in the playoffs, a 9-2 and two record. Uh, and if things may have worked out differently if the Predators would have played most of their games at home. So when, when you look at what is coming this week, uh, Tuesday at home against Philadelphia in their home opener, then they host the Dallas Stars, who actually also started 0-2 in regulation, and then they play a game on Saturday against Chicago at the United Center. And, and you and I were joking about this um, recently that uh, the Predators, the, excuse me, the Blackhawks took out a summer worth, summer's worth of frustration on the Penguins and Columbus Blue Jackets in their first two home games. Remember, the Blackhawks didn't score in two games at United Center in the first round of the playoffs. They had scored 15 combined goals against the Penguins 10 and the Blue Jackets 5. So that's going to be a tough game. You know, similarly to what the Predators were hoping to do against the Penguins, the Blackhawks are going to hope to do that to the Predators on Saturday. So when you look at this week, and you look at what needs to improve or who needs to improve, what stands out to you the most? Well, I think a couple things. Number one, we talked about this heading into the season. Other than that Johansson-Forsberg-Arvidsson line, to me anyway, there's a lot of question on this team about where the offense is going to come from. So I think we saw it a little bit in practice. They might look at trying to break up that line a little bit to, to create some balance on their lines because 
really in the first two games, other than that top line, there wasn't very much offense being generated at all. I mean, they've scored one even strength goal in two games. So that's something that they're going to have to correct very quickly. You're going up against some good offensive teams this week. Uh, Philadelphia's got a lot of talent with Giroux and Voracek. Uh, Wayne Simmons was just named third star of the week in the NHL. So a lot of firepower there. And then, of course, the Dallas Stars with that top line of Jamie Benn, Tyler Sagan, and Alex Radulov. I mean, there's a lot of firepower with the teams they're playing this week. So they're going to have to find a way to score goals. And, you know, in order to do that, you can either keep that top line together and just hope you have one dominant line and have other players chip in uh, periodically on the other lines, or you can try to break up that top line and try to spread the wealth, uh, so to speak, offensively. So I think that's something they're looking at. I think that's something that, quite honestly, they need to look at because other than that top line, I saw virtually nothing uh, from an offensive standpoint in the first two games. So that's something they're going to have to address. The other thing as you can tell, I mean, it's only been two games so far, but they already miss Ryan Ellis a lot. I mean, there's there was some t- some times in that first game in, in Boston where Matt Irwin just looked out of place on that top line, or, or, excuse excuse me, on that top defensive pairing uh, with Roman Yossi. So they really miss Ryan Ellis right now, uh, and they've got to get their offense going. And you know, we kind of expected this the first few games of the season as they were going through this transition. Uh, but you just look at this schedule in October. There's a lot of high-caliber teams, especially offensively, that they play this week. Uh, if they don't get that figured out, I mean, it could be a really rough start to this season. Yeah, uh, and, and a lot of teams, when they have that uh, when they have that slow start, you don't really come back from it too often. The Predators, uh, you know, were able to do that last year. Right. But uh, you look at remember the Columbus Blue Jackets a couple of years ago. I think it was the 14-15 season when they you know when they ultimately traded Ryan Johansson to Nashville. They started 0-8-0, I think, and the season was essentially over from right. there. Uh, despite a, a great end of the season, they I think they had like a, they won like 16 of their last 20 games or something like that. But it obviously didn't matter because they were so far behind. Uh, so Robbie is here with me in the Tennessean office, but uh, on sa- uh, on Saturday morning uh, before the Predators played the Pittsburgh Penguins, I had a chance to sit down with Chris Mason, of course, Predators former Predators goaltender on more than one occasion, and the new color analyst for Fox Sports Tennessee, and we talked about uh, his uh, evaluation of the first game against Boston as well as his thoughts on uh, the banner-raising ceremony that we're going to see Tuesday at Bridgestone Arena. So here's my conversation with Chris Mason. Well, Chris, you made your Predators television analyst debut Thursday night against Boston. We are our own harshest critics all of the time. So now that you're a couple of days removed from that debut, what do you make of how you did? I think I did okay. I mean, I uh, I was really, really nervous the night before and the day of. Uh, I probably asked Willie and Bob and David White and everybody about a million questions uh, just about how things work, what I'm supposed to do. <clears throat> but but after after it started, it, it kind of felt like when I was a, a rookie and I was going to play my first game, I was really nervous and uh, you know thought about it nonstop for a couple days before and then the day of the game, I couldn't really uh, have a nap but once the game started you kind of you know settled in and I felt that was kind of the same for this um, I was probably the most nervous about doing the bench interview you know I've never really done anything like that I don't have experience and there's just a lot that goes into it so that's uh, that was probably the thing I was most nervous about but it, it was a lot of fun and uh, the guys uh, our crew really helped me get through the day 
So, of course, you've done television before. You did Predators post and, and pregame analysis, uh, and you did some spot duty on the radio as well. But, you know, of course, when you're on TV, it's all about how you look, right? And, and you're a well-groomed man. You've got the nice beard, and we're going to say that you've chosen to, uh, to rock the uh, chrome dome. Uh, and you've always had such stylish suits. Did you have to uh, work with a stylist at all to get your look together? No, I just, uh, you know, I've been told I have a face for radio, but uh, I guess now I'm on TV. I have to, I have to make up with it, with uh, with suits and the clothes and ties and everything like that. But no, it, it's fun. It's fun though. It, it's it is a different uh, aspect of it for sure because it, it, you know a lot of thought has to go in, into that stuff and um, where you're holding your mic and all the you know the positions and your suit, the color tie you have, and all these different kind of things that you don't have to do on the radio but it's uh, I'm enjoying it the process so far I know it's only a couple of games but it's uh, it's a lot of fun stuff I'm getting to do so of course as an analyst we want you to analyze so the Predators lost in Boston 4-3 they made a game of it at the end uh, but the team was overall displeased with their effort they felt like they were outplayed for 56 minutes when you look at the way that the Predators performed uh, in that regard on Thursday about not playing up to their potential, what do you think was missing? Well, I just, I think that, you know, the Predators are usually the one, the last hockey we really saw them play was in the playoffs where I thought, you know, there was nobody that they couldn't beat. Uh, they played uh, such a fast transition game, uh, both ends defensively and offensively, turning pucks over and going the other way, but also getting back and defending. And I didn't see that as much uh against Boston I thought there were stretches where they they looked okay but for the most part I felt uh, you know Boston was was taking it to the Predators and really controlling the neutral zone and and that transition with the the speed the D-man jumping up getting involved and that's you know that's typically that's when Nashville's playing their best is is when they're doing that to other teams and I didn't really see it uh, for a lot of that game against Boston. So we're here in Pittsburgh, guys. We're recording this. It's Saturday morning. They're going to play the Penguins this evening. This will be heard after uh, after this game. Uh, but we look up at the rafters, and the Penguins have a fifth Stanley Cup banner that they won, of course, against the Predators last year, uh, last season. Uh, on Tuesday, we'll both be at Bridgestone Arena, where the Predators will have their own banner-raising ceremony to celebrate their Western Conference Championship. We talked about this yesterday. You were not, as a as a as a NHL player, you were not a part of a banner-raising ceremony, but you know a lot of the guys on the team. You know what they went through. You understand what it's like to to battle in in, in the playoffs. What do you think that moment will be like for them on Tuesday evening? I think it'll be amazing. It's uh, obviously very symbolic of the the journey that they just you know completed a few months ago, and I, I think for the you know for the Nashville Predators as an organization and the guys in that room, I just think it's a reminder of an amazing accomplishment. Obviously, they didn't you know achieve the ultimate goal, but I think for those guys to have that uh, journey and the success that they had that they actually have they know now that they can make it to the Stanley Cup finals and, and take it one step further they, they have that belief in the dressing room I think until you actually uh, go all the way like that you don't really know what it takes but now I think 
you know, you, you have that confidence as a team, as an organization, and as a player that they actually know what it takes. They've went through those battles, and now they're looking beyond just getting to the Stanley Cup Finals. I think it was a massive step in the National Predators' um, evolution. Well, Chris, thank you so much for uh, joining me here, and, and let me know when I can ply you for fashion tips. <laughs> Anytime, Bingy. Thanks, buddy. And that was Chris Mason. Thanks to Mace for uh, taking some time to speak with me on Saturday morning. I think he, well, actually, you'll have to tell me this because I was there. How do you think Chris did in his first game as a color analyst? I think he did good. I mean, I think he's, uh, we we talked about this, Darren McFarland and I, who works for 102.5 The Game. We do a lot of our radio stuff together, and we've talked about Chris Mason for a couple years. I think he's got a lot of talent in this business. I mean, you, you see former players all the time step in. And, and start being color analyst. I think he's really good. I think he has the potential to be very, very good at this, and I was impressed with the way that he and Willie started out uh, in the first two games. So we want to look around uh, the NHL for a moment because, of course, this is a Predator-centric podcast, but we're also going to talk about other things that are happening in the NHL. So a great story uh, considering things that have recent current events uh, outside of, of hockey. Uh, the Vegas Golden Knights played their first game as an expansion franchise. The, the league's 31st team, current team, uh, played Friday in Dallas. Uh, they won 2-1. Then they played the second half of a back-to-back in Arizona. They also won 2-1 in overtime. Yep. Uh, you know, it was a great story. You know, it's, it was the first time in a, quite a while that uh, an expansion team has won its first two games. I think you have to go back to the 60s uh, for the last time uh, an expansion franchise in the NHL won its first two games. What I can tell you definitively is that the Golden Knights, when they won in Dallas, it was the the, la- the previous five expansion franchises in the NHL lost their first game. So even then, it was a surprise. The reason why I bring this up is because there's a certain player on the Vegas Golden Knights who has three goals in two games, as many as the Predators have collectively as a team, and that would be James Neal. And this weekend has been an interesting one for Predators fans. They're obviously... Um, they're obviously a bit concerned with the way the team has started, but they're also seeing James Neal excel in Vegas. And it brings back a conversation that we had this summer, shortly after the season ended, because the expansion draft was about the week after uh, the season started. Um, so, uh, they, of course, they let James Neal go, and they essentially, they gave him away for free. Right. And, they, and they tried to keep him. David Poyle told me, the night of the expansion draft, which was also the night that he won the general manager of the year award, that uh, the, that the price that George McPhee, the Golden Knights general manager, was asking to protect players was too high. And he tried to negotiate but could not find common ground and called it a business decision uh, to let James Neal go, mostly because James, who is now 30 years old, was on an expiring contract, or he is on an expiring contract, that that's worth $5 million a season. Kelly Yarncroke, who's the player they protected instead of James Neal, is under contract for five more years, including this year, at $2 million a year. And when Kelly Yarncroke starts as a fourth-line center on opening night in a pretty bad performance overall, and James Neal is scoring goals from his knees to, <laughs> to uh, send the Golden Knights to their first-ever victory, it just does not, it does not look good. The optics of the right. situation are not good for Nashville Predators fans. So, Robbie, I'm going to give you an opportunity. I wrote a story about this on Saturday morning about how be happy for James Neal, but he's gone. It's, he's gone. The Predators tried. It did not to keep him. It seems 
it did not happen. So what would you, I mean, you, you and I have a lot of the same followers because we cover the team equally and you saw it too. And, you know, I, I, I understood the concern and the, and the, um, annoyance of Predators fans seeing this from afar, you know, first of all, what was the reaction on your timeline about it? And two, you know, what's your analysis of the situation? And pre- should Predators fans really be all that worked up about it? Yeah, I mean, first off, I mean, the reaction was pretty similar to yours. They were pretty worked up about it, which I think you expect when you see something like that happen, especially this early on in the season. I mean, we talked about it before. I mean, our, our concern with this Predators team heading in was where is the offense going to come from? Who's going to replace the production that James Neal had? And so far, uh, we don't know the answer to that. Now, to answer the analysis part of it, I mean, you take a look at the contract situation the Predators ran, and this is before they even let James Neal go. You know you're going to have to sign Ryan Johansson to a long-term deal. Mm-hmm. You know you're going to have to sign Victor Arvidsson to a long-term deal. So you're able to accomplish that in the summer after you let James Neal go. But you take a look. I think if you're David Poyle and you start looking at the contract situation of your team, you can't start paying everybody. Like if you pay James Neal and you – first off, you have no guarantee after this season that he was going to stick around anyway. But if you find a way to make that happen – I mean, he's probably going to command five million dollars, five and a half million dollars a season per per. I mean, per season again. So, you take a look in a couple years. You have Roman Yossi's contract coming up. You have Ryan Ellis's contract coming up. Those are two key parts to your team that you're going to have to figure out a way to make work. Now that you've signed Johansson to an eight-year, sixty-four million dollar deal. Now that you've signed Victor Arvidsson to a seven-year deal. I mean, the salary cap, while it's not an issue for the Predators right now. In a couple of years, it's going to be an issue because Roman Yossi is going to make more than $4 million a season. I mean, Ryan Ellis is going to make more than $2.5 million per season. So it wasn't just a let's protect James Neal over Callie Yarncroke decision because of his contract. It's looking down the road saying, you know, in a couple of years, we're going to have to give a new contract to Ryan Ellis. We're going to have to give a new contract to Roman Yossi. And if James Neal is still on the books at that point, it's going to be difficult to make the numbers work. So I, I think that went into it as well. You have to look long-term and just realize in a couple of years, Roman Yossi and Ryan Ellis, who in my opinion are, are much more important pieces to this team than James Neal would have been. Those guys are coming up, and you have to figure out a way to keep them. Yeah, this team really has – this team, the way that the contracts have been set up, they do have a large window to win. You know, Roman Yossi's under contract for three more years. Ryan Johansson, eight more. Victor Arvidsson, seven more. Philip Forsberg, five more. Matthias Ekholm, four, you know, I think three or four yeah. more. Uh, P.K. Subban, multiple years as well. So they, the core of this team is there. It's a matter of um, it's a matter of looking at it in a smaller window, too. You know, I do think there is a window that coincides with Pecorine's contract. So that means they have a two-year window. They have this year and next year because after next season, he turns 35 in November, so he'll be 36 going on 37 when his contract expires. And the Predators can't afford to sign a 36-year-old goaltender to a large contract. You hope that either UC Saros has proven that he's ready and that maybe you re-sign Pecorine for a year or two at a smaller cap hit as a backup. Right. Um, but... These are probably the last two full good seasons for Pecorine as a starting goaltender in the NHL. So there's a smaller window there, and you've got to make the cap work. And as you mentioned, James Neal, he'll be 31 before next season starts, and it's probably his last big deal, right? So you don't want to, uh, you know, he's going to look to cash in. He's going to make more. He's going to be looking for more than $5 million per year, which is what he's making now. And 
at that age, you know, it's it's you can't really make that commitment to somebody. Um, look at like the what the Washington Capitals did this summer in signing T.J. Oshie to a long-term contract. I mean, that contract could look like an albatross in a couple of years, uh, but they're going to be stuck with it. Technically, they could buy him out, obviously, but um, it, it's just a matter of you know making it work that way. So. That's all I have to say on that. I mean, James <laughs> Neal is a streaky is a streaky player. Yeah. Um, we've seen it in Nashville. He'll go on these goal scoring binges and then he'll quiet down for a while. So if he scores three goals in two games and then we don't hear from him for ten, I mean, then are things as bad? Right. And uh, you know, so that's just something that I, I thought needed to be addressed. I agree. Um, so we'll get that. Well, you know, we'll <laughs> people were legitimately mad. People were legitimately <laughs> mad. I mean, really um, mad. You know. I just tweeted out, James Neal scores the first goal, first goal in Vegas Golden Knights history. That was not a good idea. Bad idea. <laughs> um, so, you know, sometimes think before you tweet, kids. Um, that's our message. Yeah, that's our message. So one thing back to the current team we'll look at, we'll talk about Nick Bonino. Um, because he was an interesting signing when it happened. In a lot of ways, I thought his signing was the Predators' response to Mike Fisher's impending retirement because he plays a lot of the same game. He's a two-way player. He can, he, you know, he blocks a ton of shots. I think he led forwards in shots uh, blocked last season during the regular season. Uh, he, you know, he can take key face-offs. He's on the power play and penalty kill. Um, he can be. He's a clutch player. He has he has scored twenty plus goals once in his NHL career. Of course, his uh, you know on July first you're going to cash in. And he went from 1.9 million to 4.1 million. Right. So with that comes heightened expectations for him personally. He didn't play at all during the preseason. So first couple games, he said to me last week, we're gonna there's going to be a steep learning curve. Uh, but the Predators weren't concerned about it. He got about 16 minutes of ice time in each game. He was a minus two in each game. I thought, and of course, I know that plus minus is not a great stat. I know that I haven't looked at his analytics, but I don't think they were that good either. Um, so you have that going for you or against you on your in your depending on your viewpoint. But you know, Peter Laviolette doesn't like to number his lines or pairs or power play units. He's right. very particular about that. So he doesn't see things as a second line or a third line or a first power play unit or a second power play unit. But we do, and he was a and Nick Bonino was the second line center on Thursday and the third line center, just based on how they started and they went through pregame rushes and stuff on Saturday. You know, it looks like he may be in a third line air quotes I'm using because you can't see it except for Robbie um, <laughs> on on uh, Tuesday against the Flyers. So, what do we make of Nick Bonino so far? And you know, what did you make of the signing at the time? And, you know, I, I've been, you know, I have been openly skeptical about whether or not he can you know, play in that role. Right. Um, and I, I'm not going to base my viewpoint on two games, but that's how I entered the season and how, so how the season has gone so far. I'm not, I haven't been convinced either way. I've actually, well, let's, let me take that back. I haven't been convinced that my viewpoint isn't incorrect. Right. Um, so what was your viewpoint on it and how do you look at how things are going? Well, I agree. I agree with you first off that when they signed Nick Benino, my immediate thought was, okay, well, if Mike Fisher retires, that's the guy that comes into the lineup and replaces Mike Fisher. Like you said, two way guy can contribute offensively is really good defensively in his own end, blocks a lot of shots, does a lot of those little things that Mike Fisher did, uh, that don't really necessarily show up on the stat sheet, uh, but can win you hockey games. I'm with you, though. I mean, when you take a look at this team, you, you knew that he was probably going to be the second-line center heading into the season. 
how is he going to respond to that role? And, you know, it's been two games. He didn't play at all in the preseason. So I think it's really difficult right now to judge how he's going to fit in with this team. I still think there's a lot that not only he, but this entire team has to go through in the start of the season to get to where they want to be. Uh, but there's no question that those questions about whether or not he can produce at a second line center level are still there with me. I mean, you take a look, he hasn't broken over 40 points, I think, in three seasons now. And, you know, he was really in the perfect situation, I thought, in Pittsburgh. You're behind Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. You know those guys are going to get the lion's share of, of the points and the, and the power play opportunities, all that sort of thing. And then Nick Benino comes in on the third line and can play his style of game, which I thought was really effective for the Penguins. It's a different situation here because outside of Ryan Johansson, I mean, there's not very many offensively gifted centers for the Predators have at this point in their career. You don't know what Cali Arncroke can be. You don't know maybe one day Colton Sissons turns into that second-line guy. But Nick Benino, there's no question right now as this roster is constructed, is expected to be that second-line center. And if he can't do that, if he can't produce offensively at that level, then I think this team has a problem because we've already talked about it a few times. You're wondering where the offense is going to come from. If Nick Benino is not contributing at a high enough level offensively, I'm not sure this team is going to have enough goals. I mean, you're putting a lot of pressure on that at that point on Johansson and Forsberg and Arvidsson to drive this offense. And I think they can, but the question is how long are they going to be able to do that before they wear down? They're going to need some help at some point. Do you think it was the right decision or the wrong decision to uh... – for the Predators to keep Samuel Girard on their opening night roster? I think it's the right decision because I think when you take a look at his development, it's, it's a very tricky situation because it, it would be a lot easier for the Predators, I think, if you could just send him to Milwaukee. If you could send him to the AHL, I think he would have gone to the AHL right out of training camp and you wouldn't have this problem. He's kind of, in my opinion, he's too good to go back to juniors, but I'm not sure he's quite ready yet for the NHL. But I do think he proved enough in the preseason and played well enough in the preseason that you at least have to keep him around for the first few games and see what you have and see whether or not you have enough faith in him to keep him around as a full-time NHL player. And and then worst-case scenario, you send him back to junior and he's gotten some NHL experience under his belt. But I think in the preseason – he was very poised with the puck. I think offensively he's very gifted. The question I have for him is at his age, at 19 years old, and his size, I think he's 162 pounds yeah. or something like that. I mean, is he going to be able to physically hold up and play defensively against, I mean, other top-line players in the NHL? I mean, you saw it in the preseason. He played a lot with Roman Yossi. If he's playing with Roman Yossi when he's at the game or when he's in the game in the regular season level, I mean, you're going to see a lot of top-line guys. You're going to see the Claude Giroux. You're going to see the Jonathan Tays, the Patrick Kane. Can he keep up with those guys and play well defensively? And that's the, that's the question I have. And we haven't seen that yet because he hasn't played at the regular season level. And to your point about his weight, uh, I think that was that is what he was listed as, 162 pounds. I, I wrote a story about Sam Girard a couple of weeks ago and saw that just based on the, the weights of players last season, that appeared in games last season, at, uh, at his weight, Samuel Girard would have been the lightest defenseman in the NHL to yeah. play a game last year. And I know that the league is going towards a smaller game, but usually you want your defenseman to be a little bit bulkier. Right. Um, but And you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I've had this question asked of me by fans, is that, of course, so as you mentioned, he can't go to Milwaukee because he's 19 years old and there's an agreement between the NHL and the Canadian Junior Leagues that if a player doesn't make a team out of the opening night roster, he's got to go back to junior. He can't go to the AHL until his season is over because, right. remember, he played six games for Milwaukee last season, but that was after his junior season ended. Right. 
so if he would have left the Predators uh, and did not make the opening night roster, he wouldn't have been able to come back here until at least March. Right. Uh, because he's on an entry-level contract, the Predators have, I think, up to nine games to play him uh, without using a year of his entry-level contract. And that, and that has to be games he's actually appearing in, not games where he's a healthy scratch, right? right? So if that, is to be, if that is correct, that means the two games he sat out don't count. Right. But he has to play and physically play in nine, up to nine games. So they can play him up to seven. They can, let's say they play him in seven games, and he practices and he skates with the team, and then in that Thanksgiving they say, you know what, we need you to go back to junior. You know, they may loan him to the World Junior team as well right. for Canada, and uh, you know, that's usually around Christmas time, New Year's time, and that's the time where Ryan Ellis is expected to come back too. So it may coincide with that. So, um, you know, I, I thought it was an interesting decision that Alexi Yemelin was scratched on Saturday. That doesn't look good for him, especially not. considering that, A, they traded for him, and B, he averaged more than 21 minutes a night last year with Shea Weber in Montre- like as his partner in Montreal. Right. So he doesn't, you know, just based on skill set, he doesn't fit the same mold as the other guys, but he does add that physical element. But yeah, and he had a rough game. He did. And, and he and Boston. Weber did not look great as a third pair. Did not look great, but like like we've talked about, I mean, there weren't, wasn't really anybody that looked that great no. against Boston. So I think you'll see him back in the lineup at some point soon just because it's very difficult to, to really judge him on just one game and let it fly after that. Right. So we'll wrap it up here with something that we did with the Predators podcast last season you know we'll, we'll talk about our favorite thing or most noteworthy thing in hockey um and you know i'll start with one you know that uh that's close to home um you know the the uh rumor demise of alex ovechkin right. was apparently exaggerated uh he has seven goals in two games <laughs> he had a, a, a hat trick in the third period right. uh, against the uh, Ottawa Senators. And then I think he had a first period hat trick, right, against the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah. He had four goals in that game, so seven total. He's the first player since, I think, the league's inaugural season. So it's been 100 years since a player started a season with consecutive hat tricks at least. Of course, like I said, he had a four-goal game. Um, and, you know, and I still very much pay attention to what's happening in Washington, having you know worked around them before I came to Nashville. And you know, they're in an interesting situation because, you know, they had a two-year window to win and they they did not do it. They lost to the Penguins in the second round both times. And then uh, they had to make a lot of hard decisions this season, this offseason. They they lost Justin Williams. They lost Carl Alsner. They lost Kevin Shattenkirk. They had to trade Marcus Johan- Marcus Johansson. See, yeah. working with, you know, it's so Ryan Johansson. See, yes, Ryan Johansson, Marcus Johansson. <laughs> they had to trade Marcus Johansson to the New Jersey Devils because they were in a cap crunch. And, you know, they're signing a lot of guys that uh, – you know, they sort of taking on the Pittsburgh slash Chicago model, yeah. where there's except that those two teams won Stanley Cups before they had to do this, where you have like Devontae Smith, Pelly, and and players like that who are depth guys who, um, you know, who are making league minimum right. just to get under the salary cap. So I mean, it's worked for Chicago and it's worked for Pittsburgh. So maybe not having such a you know, a star-studded lineup all the way through for Washington may be better for them. I mean, their defense you know took a hit as well. You know, like, you know, players like Taylor Chorney, who some of you, most of you who are listening to this probably have never heard of, are getting regular minutes for the Washington Capitals. So, but back to Ovechkin, you know, had a down year last year, and people were wondering if that was it for him. But seven goals in two games does not seem to to be a problem. And and the Predators are going to see the Capitals early on in the season. They come here in mid-November. 
and it's always good to see Barry Trotz. It is. Uh, so it'll be good for that. So you know, it was good. To, there were multiple hat tricks in the NHL. Oh, yeah. uh, um, Connor McDavid, had Connor one McDavid, um, Wayne Simmons, who will be with the you know who plays for the Flyers and will be in Nashville on Tuesday. Um, there's another one in there that I'm missing too. Oh, me too. I'm trying to think of it. Oh, uh, was it? It wasn't Austin Matthews, was it? It was not. No. Um, man, now this is going to bother me. <laughs> uh, there, there was at least one more in there. Yeah. And scoring uh, is way up. Yeah, scoring week. is way up. I think at least four goaltenders were pulled on Saturday yeah. night. Carey Price was pulled, um, I, which doesn't happen often no. in Montreal. Um, so, anyway, that was my spiel. So outside of the, you know, outside of the Predators, just watching the first week of hockey on the ice, off the ice, you know, what stood out to you this week? I think one of the most interesting teams in the league is the Toronto Maple Leafs because you've got a whole bunch of young talent there. You've got Austin Matthews, you've got William Nylander, you've got Mitch Marner. There's a whole lot of pieces to build around. And so far this season, I mean, they've been scoring a ton of goals, but they've also been giving up a lot of goals as well. So that's what's interesting to me is is that young team. I think if you if you take a look at and pulled people around the league of, of who maybe the two most promising teams are for the next five, ten years. I think a lot of people would say the Edmonton Oilers and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Well, I mean, obviously that's a huge market in the NHL, Toronto is, that struggled for a long time to be relevant. Last year they, they took that step, they got to the playoffs, went up against the Washington Capitals in the first round, really gave them, I thought, all they could handle in that first-round series. Now you're seeing that next step of can Austin Matthews elevate that team to being a team that, that goes from competing for a playoff spot to maybe competing for the Eastern Conference Championship. And so far, I mean, they look great offensively. I mean, they're scoring a lot of goals. They're very dynamic. A lot of holes defensively so far, though. So that's something they're going to have to correct. I think their most recent game on Saturday against the New York Rangers was just epitomizes exactly what you were talking about. This final score is 8-5. to five, right. And I think they were up 5-1. Five, 5-1. One, five, one. And the Rangers tied it at 5. Yeah. So... That is so, as Robbie said, it was a great, you know, a great showing of what the Toronto Maple Leafs currently are, what they are good at and what they aren't good at. One more thing I want to touch on quickly before we wrap it up uh, for good is uh, what happened in the Lightning Panthers game the other night. Um, we did not expect much at all or any of the quote-unquote national anthem protests right. to appear in the National Hockey League for a couple of reasons. Um, but it did for the first time. J.T. Brown, a black player, uh, raised his fist on the bench uh, uh, when the Lightning played the, before the Lightning played the Panthers for the second time. Right. I think they started with back-to-back games, so I guess it was Saturday night. Saturday night. Um, and he said after the game that it was something he really thought about, um, and he knew that there would be backlash but felt it was an important thing to do. Um, so, you know, the demonstrations that we've seen in the NFL and the outspokenness we've seen in the NBA, we're not going to see that in the NHL. Um, it's a largely non-American league. Um, I think less than a quarter of a player, I think about a quarter of the players who appeared in in one game, at least one game last year in the NHL were American. So, and, uh, the NFL is almost exclusively American, uh, so it's just it's not going to be the same level of uh, of political activism. Um, but I did think it was a uh, I did think it was interesting to see it actually happen, and I'd be curious to see if other players follow his lead. I'm not sure if that's going to be the case. Of course, Joel Ward, a former Predators player, was the first to acknowledge that he might kneel. He ultimately decided not to, right. and it had a really great statement on Twitter about his decision not to do that. You know, Wayne Simmons was a player who who supported Joel and, and thought about doing it too. 
Um, do you think that other players in the league will take JT Brown's uh, lead, will follow his lead, or do you think this was an isolated incident? You know, that's an interesting question because I, I'm with you. Before the season started, we talked about it, and to be honest with you, I didn't really expect anything to ever happen. And now that JT Brown has done that, I think it does open up the question of if you're other players around the league, is this something that I want to do? Uh, because you, you know, you just take a look at the political climate right now. Obviously, uh, we live in a very divisive time in this nation. We live in a very divisive time that's that's translated or transformed into the sports world as well. I mean, you see it every week in the NFL. So it's an interesting question. I know you talked to PK Subban about this, and he he basically said uh, that he's a guy that's always going to sit there and, and respect the anthem and not really ever going to do anything in the anthem. Now, the thing you have to remember about a lot of these guys, especially you know PK Subban is a perfect example. He's Canadian, so. That's an entirely different aspect and that makes it very difficult, I think, to predict in the NHL because, like you said, in the NFL, it's almost exclusively American. Uh, there's not very many foreign players. I mean, you've got Jay Ajaye that's from uh, London or from Great Britain, but other than that, I mean, there's not a whole lot of foreign players uh, in the NFL. In the NHL, I mean, it's predominantly Canadian. You've got you know European players from Sweden, Switzerland, wherever. Uh, so it's a much different situation uh, in the NHL. So it's difficult to predict, but now that JT Brown has kind of opened the door here, I wouldn't be surprised to see other people follow his lead. Uh, I just think that's the time we live in right now where, where sports and politics aren't necessarily separated. Yeah, it's uh, it'll be something to watch. I'm, I'm not sure if it will continue, but it was uh, it was uh, something to see it actually happen. Yeah. So. Well, Robbie, thank you for coming in and, and chatting with me and sort of taking the conversations we regularly have and putting them to, you know, a podcast for all for, the world to hear. Yes, for all the world to hear. Yes. Oh, uh, so just for those uh, for those listening who uh, may not follow you on Twitter or follow your work, which first of all, you're doing it wrong if you're not, especially Correct. if you like uh, Especially if you like uh, regular criticism of the University of Tennessee football yeah, program, if you want some, Robbie some Stanley criticism. is the guy to go to. I'm your man. He is not a champion of life. He does not take leadership reps. I do not. So, uh, fill him in, Robbie. Where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at rstanleynhl, and you can follow along with my work at nhl.com as well as at 1025 The Game. I do a lot of radio work there too. Yeah, Robbie is a regular uh, pre and post game host on 1025 uh, during road games. And, of course, he's up in the press box with me at Bridgestone Arena during home games where we'll both be on Tuesday. So, of course, just wrapping up the week, uh, Tuesday, uh, the Predators open their home schedule against the Philadelphia Flyers at 7 o'clock. On Thursday, they have another home game, uh, a divisional game against the Dallas Stars, uh, also at 7 o'clock. And then on Saturday night, they go to Chicago to face the Blackhawks for the first time since they swept the Blackhawks out of the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. I believe that's a 7.30 start, which are which they're just terrible. 7.30 the starts are just the, the worst. Uh, so that's a 7.30 start in Chicago. And uh, we'll be back. Uh, well, I'll be back. Robbie will certainly be a guest again in the future, but I will be back next week to break down the week that was with the Nashville Predators. So continue to follow my work at Tennessean.com. Follow me on Twitter at Adam Vingen. And thank you so much for listening to the the, the, well, I guess the inaugural podcast of the new Tennessee and Predators podcast. <laughs>